to the 94 Feet Report. I'm your host, as always, Eric Spiropoulos, and you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros. Today's episode of the 94 Feet Report is brought to you by Fan Essentials. Use promo code 94FEET at checkout for 30% off your first subscription, and by Daily Fantasy Nerd. If you play any Daily Fantasy, uh, check out their site for some great Daily Fantasy tools. In today's episode of the 94 Feet Report, we are recording on Sunday, February 26th, before the game start for the day. Um, and we, this will be released on February 27th. We will be joined by VJ Vimu, who is an MBA and college basketball contributor for SB Nation's Bulls blogger um, and also a writer for 16 Wins a Ring, which is where we host this podcast, the 94 Feet Report. And what we're going to be doing is going in-depth uh, in into some trade deadline winners and losers, asking some questions about each team that we have as a winner or a loser, and projecting where each team goes moving forward. Uh, so in a little bit, we'll be joined by VJ to discuss trade deadline winners and losers. All right, we are now joined by VJ of 16 Wins a Ring and uh, the Bulls blogger on SB Nation. VJ, how are you today? Good, Eric. How are you? Thank you for having me on. No problem. Doing pretty well myself. Um, all right, so let's get into trade deadline winners and losers. There's a bunch of them on both sides, in my opinion. Um, I guess we'll start off with the winners, because winners are usually going first. Um, I think one of the biggest winners are the Toronto Raptors. Um, you know, they picked up P.J. Tucker and Serge Ibaka, and I really don't think they had to give up that much. Um, Terrence Ross is a nice young rotational player. They gave up the, the less favorable of their first-round picks between their theirs or the Clippers. Two second-round picks and Jared Sollinger, who has been basically unplayable in the minutes he's played this season for Tucker and Ibaka. They now have so much defensive versatility um, that I think that it's going to suit them really well in the playoffs, defending teams like the Cavs, who they've had trouble you know, playing against in the playoffs in the past. This could potentially put them over the edge over against the Celtics and the Wizards. Um, Wizards made a move for Bogdanovich. Celtics didn't make a move at all. So um, I have the Raptors as big winners. Um, you know, How did you view the moves that they made for, during the trade deadline? I'm just with you. I think the um, the Raptors had the biggest um, the biggest win of the trade deadline, which was getting PJ Tucker for basically Jared Sollinger, who I think the Suns will be waving, and two second round picks, which is uh, basically a steal because I think there were reports coming out of Phoenix that t- they really wanted a first round pick out of Tucker. So you basically got a guy like Jared Sollinger that the Raptors never used, plus two second round picks. For a guy like P.J. Tucker, and like you said, Tucker gives them so much defensive versatility. Um, he's a great defender, so it gives the Raptors a shutdown guy, per se, against LeBron James, like a, like a certain defensive bonafide guy. And um, also they got Serge Ibaka for basically Terrence Ross and the lesser, I think, their first-round picks. So um, I think both of them really give the Raptors a lot of key movement around when it comes to the comes to the big teams in the East, uh, especially Ibaka, because now he can play at the five and the four, so it gives Toronto the ability to go small against teams like Boston, and sometimes when the Wizards go small, but mostly against Boston, and we saw that on Friday night when they ran out the lineup with Ibaka at the five and a bunch of shooters around him, that it actually does really work. Um, and also Tucker can also play as a three and D guy, so he doesn't need the ball much in his hands, so he can dish it off to Lowry and DeRozan. So I think the Raptors had had some holes coming into the trade deadline, but credit to Masai Ujiri. He plugged them very well and didn't give up much for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the cost they had to give up to get those great pieces that really fit in and fill the needs that they had really make them huge winners, for my opinion. They didn't have to really sacrifice that much because even if they gave up Ross, they have Norman Powell behind him. Um, you know, the less favorable of the first-round picks that they're going to between theirs and the Clippers, that's not 
that's not a steep price at all, really, when you have both those picks. Um, and yeah, like you said, the, the defensive versatility that, that Tucker and Ibaka add, you throw in them with, you know, Patrick Patterson, who's been really good for the Raptors as a, a defender. Um, both Patterson and Ibaka, I think, are hitting above 36% on threes. So even when you put them out in the lineup together, that doesn't really kill the floor spacing because they're still pretty credible threats from beyond the arc. Um, then you add in Tucker. And on that, that game you mentioned against the Celtics on Friday, I mean, they had a I think it was Tucker at the four, Ibaka at the five down the stretch, and they basically just shut down the Celtics for stretches. You know, Horford was basically non-existent in the last couple of minutes. Uh, Isaiah Thomas was not his usual self in the fourth quarter, um, was being heavily guarded, um, especially when Tucker could switch out to him on the perimeter. So just the defensive versatility that Tucker and Ibaka bring, um, I have them as huge winners because it didn't cost them that much to get them. More important to talk about the Raptors with Ibaka, especially as now it gives them a versatile rim protector, which is something I don't think they had with Jonas Valanciunas. Like with the Celtics, uh, we know Horford loves to step out and shoot those mid-range jumpers, and um, Valanciunas can't always come out and close them down, but now Ibaka can because he's more of a quicker player and a better rim protector. So I think that gives the that's really the key for the Celt- uh, for the Raptors. Sorry, um, a big man who can space the floor and play good defensively. That's the key. Yeah, Ibaka is going to be key for them down the stretch. So my question is, I guess, um, so what seed do you think the Raptors finish with um, at the end of the regular season? Currently in fourth, they're a game behind the Wizards for third. They're three games behind the Celtics for second. Do you see them catching the Celtics for number two or, or only getting up to number three at the best? Um, I think I'll see them getting the number three seed partially, but I don't think they catch up to the Celtics um, because, like, you know, they're dealing with injuries right now and all that. And I think... Um, but I think it, they should be viewed like technically as a two seed right now with all the moves that they made. So I wouldn't be surprised if you do see Toronto make like the Eastern Conference Finals, even though they're in the three seed, because I mean they're a very good team right now. I think they're the second best team behind the Cavaliers, um, but they do have some injuries right now with Lowry going on. So I don't know if they're going to catch up to the Celtics, considering how well the Celtics are still playing, even though they lost. But they'll certainly catch up to the Wizards, I think. Yeah, I think I think they're going to cast the three seed, and I think they'll come close to this two seed depending on how quickly they can get fully healthy. But I don't think they're going to cast the two seed. But really, the most important thing for the Raptors or any team really that wants a chance at the conference finals is avoiding that four five matchup because then that slots you with uh, the Cavs in the second round, which is the most likely the end of your postseason run right there. But yeah, I agree with you. I think they're going to cast the three seed. The Wizards made an a okay move in getting Bogdanovich, but compared to what the Raptors did to get Ibaka and Tucker, I think that puts them over the Wizards' edge uh, and getting the third seed and avoiding that potential Cavs matchup until the Eastern Conference Finals. So, yeah, overall, I think the Raptors were both in agreement there that the Raptors are big, big winners uh, for the trade deadline. My next winner that I have, actually, I have, technically have two in this one, but it's the Dallas Mavericks and... and- an interesting deal. Everyone knew that the 76ers were shopping Okafor and to a lesser extent Noel. Apparently, I guess they couldn't get anything for Okafor that they liked. And this trade for Noel really wasn't what I expected they could get. Um, it's a really low-cost move for the Mavericks. It's going to be most likely two second-rounders and Justin Anderson. Um, and depending on how you view Anderson, that kind of changes how you view the trade. But for Noel, I think he's now in a, in a good situation with a great coach and Rick Carlisle. He's got veterans around him like Dirk. Um, J.J. Barea, you know, so many veterans around him, and just an, a better situation than he was in Philadelphia. Um, and so I think that's going to be really beneficial for Noel. For the Mavericks, is a really low-cost maneuver and, and trade to get Noel, and you, you'll see what he's got for the rest of the season. But the question is, is, is Noel going to be worth his next contract, which is 
it's probably going to be, you know, 15 to $20 million per season. So, you know, how did you view the Mavericks trade and, you know, how do you see Noel's situation and play moving forward in Dallas? Um, I certainly thought the Mavericks trade was a win for Dallas because I think they only gave up a first round. They only gave up Justin Anderson, which I don't know. I don't know how, yeah, like you said, how you view Justin Anderson is how you view the trade, which I think you can look at that for many trades, especially with young guys. It's how you view if the young guy can develop or not. I think Anderson can develop, but I don't know if he was exactly worth the type of production, him plus the first round pick, which is very heavily protected. So, like, I think it's like spots through one through 18, and then it turns into two second round picks. So, it's a really hit or miss for uh, Philadelphia there. Um, but I think I think this is a good move for Noel. Um, I think it sets up Dallas with a very good young core right now, especially if they do re sign Noel. Although he does have his injury issues with his knees and stuff like that, I still think, um, given the shot blocking, his athleticism, um, his, I don't know his ability to close out defenders in space. I think I think he's still worth that type of money. And uh, like I said earlier, it does give him a good young core with Noel, Harrison Barnes, Dwight Powell, um, Seth Curry's playing well. Yogi Ferrell is taking over at the starting almost almost starting some games. Um, so I think um, what Dallas needed to do was find a good core that they can be at least semi confident in when Dirk leaves in the, within the next few years or even this year. Um, so they found they found a good big man in um, Nolan's Noel, and I think uh, Donnie Nelson said this, and I think he's really correct about it. They haven't had a guy like that since Tyson Chandler um, when they won the title. So I think Noel, like for the Raptors too, gives him that shot blocking presence and someone that can that you can possibly build around for the future. Exactly. Yeah, he does feel he does feel a need for them for both now and for the future, and adds to the kind of the couple of young pieces that they have that Rick Carlisle almost always seems to get the most out of every single year. Um, and uh, you, you know, I think that similar to the Raptors' moves, this, this, this cost for the Mavericks was was so low in my opinion. You know, as you mentioned, the heavily heavily protected first round pick picks one. Uh, one through 18 it's protected so most likely it'll it'll convert to the two second rounders which you know second round picks are basically a crapshoot in the nba draft um and then yeah justin anderson i think he can develop but i just don't think that him being the centerpiece with two second rounders was really you know worth noel's value but then again we don't know you know the sixers probably tried to get more but noel probably hurt his value so much over the past year with the injuries and you know the kind of personality issues that um, probably lowered his price a lot, kind of like Okafor, because apparently the Sixers couldn't get anything for Okafor, um, even though he was on the market openly for like a couple of weeks, you know, almost close to a deal with the Pelicans. Then the Bulls tried to get him, and, and nothing happened. And Noel ends up getting traded for what I think is a pretty low cost. Um, so that's why I like the move for the Mavericks. And yeah, I agree with you. I think he's he's going to be worth that next contract. He's athletic. He's young. Can sh- block shots. Can you know rotate out to the perimeter. Um, and as a threat in alley-oops, kind of like that Tyson Chandler role that they had when they won the title. So I, I have to agree with you. I think it's a win for both the Mavericks and Nerlens Noel. And we'll get to the Sixers when we get to the losers. That kind of gives gives away what the, I view their trade. Um, for the next winner, uh, the Houston Rockets. Um, I think that besides getting Lou Williams, which I think is a good move, though I thought it was pretty unexpected. I thought that the Rockets would be the ones... Uh, and they probably did still t- target, you know, defensive wings like P.J. Tucker, Cephalosha, guys like that. Um, 
they ended up getting Lou Williams adding to their offensive firepower. Um, they're now playing, they've played two games since the trade, and they're now playing a, a, an interesting lineup of Harden, Lou Williams, and Eric Gordon, with Gordon matching up against opposing small forwards. And so far, it's worked because they just blitz teams offensively. But the other reason I have the Rockets as big winners is because they got rid of their worst rotational player in Brewer, who was actually making more than Lou Williams next season. So they actually saved money on this deal. Um, and they cleared $3.5 million in cap space for the buyout market by trading KJ McDaniels to the Nets and Tyler Ennis to the Lakers. Um, so again, it, it's kind of hard to judge what you know that move will do if depending on who and if they sign anyone from the buyout market. Um, but you know, obtaining Lou Williams for basically a first rounder that's going to be in the twenty six to twenty seven range, I thought was a great move for the Rockets. And you know, again, we have to wait and see who they sign with that you know cap space to really evaluate those other moves. Um, but I thought that Rockets getting rid of Brewer and adding Williams makes them a winner for the trade deadline. So how did you view the Rockets' moves? Um, I think it was a great move considering like what we talked about with the two winners before. The return, I mean not the return, what they had to give away to get Lou Williams was the, was the big key. Uh, you give a first-rounder that um, is going to be in the 26 to 27 range. So you don't know if that guy that you draft is going to be really necessary impact player more than a rotational player. So, you, I mean, for the Rockets, you'd be fine giving giving that potential prospect away. You also gave up Corey Brewer, who, like you said, makes more than Lou Williams, which is crazy. <laughs> so, um, I mean, giving getting away one of your worst, worst rotational players for a guy like Lou Williams, who's one of the best um, shooters in the league right now and one of the best scorers in the league, um, just gives more, James Harden another guy can dish out the ball to. Um, and, you know, it's just James Harden the shooters right now. Uh, the one concern I think it would be is the defense because, you know, I don't know exactly Lou Williams isn't the best defender. <laughs> but I do think that this does set up the Rockets for um, a team that could, like, match the Warriors in a way and that the Warriors want to run and gun all over. I think the Rockets are suited for that style. Um, so it gives them another um, another threat from deep in which they can possibly combat the Warriors. Now, could they beat the Warriors? That's a whole different question. But I do think that this trade helps the Rockets set up more to, for a game to like run with the Warriors and certainly make it at least an interesting series if they do ever meet the playoffs. Yeah, it certainly would be interesting. Certainly would be very exciting. Um, another thing about this Rockets team, you know, Mike D'Antoni after the trade said he wants the team to average fifty three point attempts per game uh, over the like the final twenty some some odd games that they have left. And so far, the first two games they've they've hit that fifty mark. Um, and you know, the Rockets are now built for a team that can um, either make a huge comeback in a really short amount of time with the amount of three pointers they take, or blow out a game in a in a really short amount of time, which they've done against the Pelicans and the Timberwolves both the past two games. Um, so you know you mentioned the Warriors but I first want to ask you a, a kind of lesser question you know are the Rockets a, a threat to the Spurs Can, if they met in the second round which you know as of right now both teams would be favored in their first round matchups and they would slot be slotted to face each other in the second round do you think that the Rockets could win that series against the Spurs now with the addition of Lou Williams um I think so I think I don't know because you know the Spurs are the Spurs so I'm still going to yeah. give the Spurs a little bit of that benefit of the doubt when it comes to that but I do think that Houston certainly um, will give San Antonio problems, uh, even though San Antonio is probably one of the best teams defensively in the league. Um, because, you know, Harden will be will be guarded by Kawhi Leonard, and you'll have all these shooters out. So I think the fact that um, the Rockets have guys have big men like Ryan Anderson that can step out and shoot will give the Spurs problems, particularly because of the big men they have right now outside of uh, Dwayne Dedman. They have guys like Pau Gasol, David Lee, guys who, um, if you step them out of the paint, they're not really that good of defenders. 
So I think if the Rockets are able to capitalize on going small and shooting and taking a lot of threes, which is basically sticking to their game plan, I mm. think they could give the Spurs problems. But they just have to be able to um, get stops on the other end against the Spurs, who every year display great ball movement. Yeah, it, it'd always be tough. And uh, I agree that, you know, the Rockets' potent offense going small, you can spread out the San Antonio bigs by playing them on the perimeter and trying to have them guard the various three-point shooters that the Rockets have, especially when they go small, um, could give the Spurs some trouble. Then, you know, you know, the other end of the court, the Spurs, you know, Aldridge can really go against, uh, you know, like Ryan Anderson, take advantage there. Um, and, you know, the Spurs have some good perimeter defenders, Danny Green, Jonathan Simmons, of course, Kawhi Leonard. So, you know, it, it'll be interesting because right now the season series is 2-1 San Antonio, but one of those games, the Rockets blew a double-digit lead in, in the final minutes of a home game in December. So, you know, really, more it's more likely that the Rockets, if they played that game again, would be would have won that game. The, the Rockets would be up 2-1 in the season series. But I think that game, I think that series, no matter who wins, would certainly go seven games, especially if the Rockets are hot from beyond the arc. Um Let's move on to our next winner of the trade deadline, the Oklahoma City Thunder, a team that the Rockets may potentially face in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, I really like their trade because they got a shooter in McDermott, and we've heard all about the lack of shooting in Oklahoma City. They got an interior defender and rebounder and really physical presence in Taj Gibson. And they also got a second rounder thrown in there for basically essentially Cameron Payne because that's the Bulls you know, can view him as a potential point guard of the future. Um you know, the question, I guess, not really from the Thunder perspective, from the Bulls perspective is, you know, will Payne, you know, even develop to become a starting point guard in the NBA? It remains to be seen that he'll become that. Um, obviously, him playing alongside and behind Russell Westbrook hasn't done favors, you know, that much for his development. But, you know, he hasn't shown exactly starting point guard caliber, you know, level of play so far. Um, but from the Thunder perspective, perspective they got a shooter they got a defender and rebounder and a set, all for essentially Cameron Payne you know Joffrey Laverne you know is a nice player but he's not really a big deal for the Thunder and then Anthony Marr who was basically stopped hitting threes this season so he was not as you know useful as he could have been if he was actually shooting well um, so how did you like the, the trade from the Thunder uh, perspective? Uh, from Thunder's perspective, I think it was a great trade considering that, like, you know, Cameron Payne wasn't exactly, I don't think, I personally don't think he's going to pan out to be a decent um, starting point guard. I know, I think eventually he'll start to start for Chicago, which doesn't exactly mean a lot given Chicago's depth at point guard. Um, but I do think from the Thunder perspective, they got a good interior defender in Gibson um, without giving up a lot, I think, because, you know, they, they have basically another good power four big men like Ibaka so they sort of kind of replaced him and also it gives time for Sabonis to develop while OKC tries to be in the playoffs and doesn't put too much pressure on the rookie and McDermott just gives them more shooting I mean Chicago and Oklahoma City basically have the same problem when it comes to shooting and now just OKC just has that shooter um so I think McDermott could shine in that role if you play him well and if you put him in positions to succeed which is um make sure he doesn't He's not going to do a lot with the ball, um, so basically run him off screens, run him off stuff like that. Um, also, you got to be able to hide him defensively because he's not – he doesn't always pay attention when he's, when he's playing defense, and he can easily get, like, backdoored. Or if there's a guy that's just bigger than him, just bully him in the paint. So I think Oklahoma City um, can use him easily off the bench and with bench lineups or with uh, Westbrook with shooters, which I feel would work considering how defenses gravitate towards the paint in Westbrook. Um, but in terms of what they gave up, I think it was really good. Talking about also with Payne not exactly developing into a starting point guard. I don't know if exactly will be because he was a lot different than Reggie Jackson, which was another backup point guard we saw in Oklahoma City. And they also gave up Joffrey Laverne and Anthony Morrow, which uh, who both of them are expiring contracts. 
So, um, although Gibson is an expiring contract, McDermott's still under contract. So, I mean, you basically gave up two expiring contracts and got back two guys that can help you help you in the playoff run, plus a second round pick, which you could either use or possibly flip in a later deal. So, I think this is a good move by Sam Presti, um, an aggressive move certainly. But he, considering he, what he gave up, he got a great return back. Yeah, I thought it was a really good move, considering that they didn't have, you know, they didn't want to, you know, gut their team from their from an asset perspective to make a move when this is most likely not going to be a year that they make a long playoff run. But this is a move that they didn't have to give up much, and they still got pieces. They got a shooter, they got a defender, and rebounder, and Gibson. Um, and it'll be interesting because Gibson's going to be a free agent. They know Roberson's going to be a free agent, um, and is probably going to demand some money in today's market. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if the Thunder keep both of them, maybe choose which one to pay depending on what Gibson you know commands in the market and what Roberson commands in the market um you know my question to you is uh with this new trade with these additions of McDermott and Gibson you know what seed do you think the Thunder will finish with because now the Clippers are getting healthy uh Utah's playing well even though they still have some injury problems um but do you think the Thunder could you know potentially go up to all the way to the five or four seed or you know they're seventh right now they're half a game behind the Grizzlies for six where do you think they're going to finish uh with the seed at the end of the regular season um, I think I think the max they will go I think is six because the Clippers are getting healthy. The Jazz, like you said, are heating up again. So I think the Clippers will possibly try to rise into that four or even try to catch up to the Rockets and make it something. So I do think um, while OKC won't won't slip to the Nuggets, um, I think their reasonable seeding um, will be around sixth or seventh. Although they could just go off on a tear and go to fourth, who knows? But I think sixth and seventh is the likely seeding for Oklahoma City. Uh, which sets up a first-round matchup against either the Rockets or the Spurs. Um, it certainly makes it exciting. Um, but I think, I don't know, I just think the back half of the West is just extremely loaded. Like, you look at if you just look at the standings, like, no matter who they face, they're going to face a really good team um, and, something, and a matchup where I don't think they'll be favorable. But I think Oklahoma City um, will likely try and just take, will likely get the sixth or seventh seed. Yeah, I think they're gonna finish. I think they're gonna finish sixth. They're only a half game behind the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies didn't make any moves. They were a good team to begin with, but um, I think I remember reading it somewhere uh, a couple of days ago. That the Thunder only have eight games against teams over five hundred the rest of the season. Um, so that that easy schedule and you know getting these pieces that could really help them down the stretch could make it um, very easy for them to pass the Grizzlies for six and sets up an interesting matchup between the presumed uh, MVP favorites between the Rockets and the Thunder. Uh, let's move on to a team that I actually have on both sides of the list, the Portland Trailblazers. Um, I thought that getting another first rounder in the 2017 draft for Plumlee, who they probably weren't going to pay due to the amount of contracts they had last offseason, uh, was a good move. And I think Nurkic is just a cheap, good flyer. You know, he might not solve their problems as a defensive big man, but he's cheap. Um, and, you know, he does have potential. He's shown some good promise and, and some good play over the past season or two. So I thought getting him was a good flyer at, at a cheap price, and especially for Plumlee, who they don't really see as, a, as part of their plan, to, you know, especially because of the money he's going to come in on the market. So that's a reason why I have them as a potential winner. Um, but I'll get to the other side of that when we get to losers. So, you know, how do you view the, the trade that the Blazers made? Actually, I think it was a week or two before the actual deadline. Um, I thought it was a good trade. Um, obviously, they're very capped right now when it comes financially because you got to pay Lillard, McCollum, and they signed Evan Turner, which I think, I'm still questioning why they did that. Um, mm-hmm. They signed Alan Crabb. So they have all those guys under contract. So somebody had to be had to walk, right? Because, like, you know, they were probably going to face um, – they didn't want to face what they had years ago when they had, like, four out of five starting lineup leave. So, I mean, I credit the um, front office for just trying to hold it in there. Um, so they got Nurkic for a cheap 
cheap deal. Plumlee was likely going to make more than what Portland was going to offer him, so that's a good, um, a good one. Plus, they got a first rounder, so I mean that that really does help. Um, but at the same time, uh, with the Blazers, you still have the same questions. Like you know, this team they built this team to make a playoff run, and they're they're not near the playoffs right now. They're um, they're like one and a half games back. But you know, many expected Portland to be like sixth or seventh seed maybe like something like around that and it's just not working out right now which also again raises the questions of can Lillard and McCollum play together because and like can they build a decent enough team around them considering how much bad contracts they have they have two very bad contracts certainly one with Evan Turner and I don't know if you consider Alan Crabb a bad contract right now but he's certainly I don't know if he's exactly playing up to the level of his contract and once Lillard gets out of his contract he'll be 30 so his prime's on the, on the near end so I think while Portland did get a first rounder for Nurkic, um, in the next coming years, they're going to have to decide very quickly on who they want to be the centerpiece of their franchise. Will they stick it out with McCollum? No, I'm sorry, stick it out with Lillard, or will they um, focus on McCollum and possibly try to move Damian Lillard for a lot of young pieces to a contender um, who wants to win right now? Yeah, you bring up a lot of problems with the Blazers. It's probably it's pretty clear that their, their 2016 offseason might haunt them for the foreseeable future um you know you brought up a lot of heavy expectations i saw a lot of people predicting this team to win maybe up to 50 games this season and comfortably be a top five top six seed you know they have their defensive struggles they were close to the bottom of the league for most of the season they're now 25th which still isn't good they have a negative 2.3 net rating and you know there are a lot of questions if Lillard and McCollum can be that backcourt can you surround them with enough pieces especially on the defensive end to build a winner um, but these contracts that they have you brought up Crab's contract which is a lot of money and he's been playing well but you know still not up to that kind of standard Evan Turner contract I agree with you I had no idea why they gave him that contract they also gave more Harkless that 10 million dollar per year for four years contract and Myers Leonard that same I think four years 40 million dollar contract for you know a guy who you know is a you know basically not playing enough to even warrant you know that contract at all but he got that contract they gave it to him they gave it to Harkless they gave out money to Turner they gave out money to Crab. that made Plumlee I guess the odd man out with him getting another payday coming this season and you know I thought it was good to get a first round pick and Nurkic um, but you know for them to have to make moves with the, the their money in the back of their mind is a reason why I have them as a loser because they're basically just doing these moves as a result of their spending spree they went on in 2016, which, you know, they gave out bad contracts instead of good contracts. So, you know, it's a tough situation for the Blazers moving forward, but probably one of the more fascinating, you know, front offices to watch over the next couple of seasons to see the decisions they make to, to change the direction of the franchise. Uh, yeah, certainly. I think uh, it would... It's very interesting times in Portland right now because they have a good squad, but they're surrounded by a bunch of bad contracts, um, which kind of like is the anti of what they did last year because they got a, a lot of guys on cheap contracts. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how they maneuver themselves out of this position now. Absolutely. And the final winner I have on my list are the Pelicans and it also, you know, Dell Demps to a, to a degree as well. So, you know, De- Demps's job was, was definitely, I think, on the line with another struggling season with the Pelicans. Another year of Anthony Davis is the extreme performance is wasted. And then they swung this deal for DeMarcus Cousins, basically giving up 50 cents on the dollar for Cousins. And I think it affords Demps another year or so to build the, the correct roster with some time around uh, Boogie and Brow. Um, you know, right now they've got some serious uh, deficiencies on the wing and at shooting guard. Of course, Drew Holiday is going to be a free agent. He's going to command some serious money. Um, so, you know, they're not going to have a lot of money to actually, you know, build this proper roster around, you know, uh, Boogie and Anthony Davis. Um, but I think that just getting Cousins 
and not only getting him, but getting him for basically 50 cents on the dollar affords Dell Dem some time, and uh, some time to build the roster in a year where he was certainly his on the hot seat along with Alvin Gentry. Um, so just for that reason, it's pretty obvious that most people have Pelicans as a winner, but I have to include Dell Demps in that situation as well. Yeah, I think he really did save his job with this one. Uh, he really um, flexed the Kings on this one. I mean, I, I mean, it, I don't know. It kind of speaks volumes of how desperate the Kings were to give a Boogie Cousins. Um, but like that was that was kind of crazy how they got so much value and didn't give much back because uh, you know there's always questions about Buddy Heald, um, and you you don't know for sure if he's going to be a good enough prospect. So that was an if. Um, we gave up a couple first round picks, certainly which Boogie's worth, but. Um, Considering what they got back and what they have right now, um, I think that this was such a good deal for the Pelicans, and they got two guys they can build around now, um, two young centers that can actually build around now. They have two of the top five centers in the league. Um, they just need some wing help, and they need yeah, they just need some wing help and a um, more depth from the bench. And I think they can start, you know, maybe talking about a playoff race. Who knows? But um, they might be a couple, they might be like a year away from that. But I think it does set up New Orleans for the future and what they can achieve in the future because they have two key building blocks right now. And also it helps because now Anthony Davis doesn't have an exact reason to leave because they got him help in a big way in Boogie Cousins. Now they just have to add small glue guys here and there, and I think the Pelicans might be set for the future. Yeah, from moving forward, I think it's all about those small moves, getting some more shooters around him, getting some more wing play and some guard play, bringing back Holiday, um, you know, hopefully not, not too steep of a price, but it'll probably cost them a good amount of money there. Um, so, you know, they won't have a lot of cap room, which makes Dempsey's job a little bit harder, but, you know, probably the reason why he gets more time is to try and get those guys on cheap contracts that can shoot, get some, you know, get some perimeter defenders and stuff like that to build around DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis. But yeah, they're certainly set up for the future. Looking at the other side of the coin, let's move on to the losers. Let's talk about the Kings because, you know, we were just talking about the Pelicans. You know, vice versa, the, they traded Cousins away for basically 50 cents on the dollar. Um, and this is one of those situations we were talking about Justin Anderson before and how and, and Cameron Payne. Basically, how you view young players kind of changes your view on the trade. You know, we know Vivek Ranadive has an irrational love for Buddy Heald, uh, calling him the next uh, Steph Curry. Um you know, he's probably, you know, happy that he has Buddy Heald now, but for most of us, we're basically laughing at the Kings for, you know, trading Cousins away for so little in return. Um, so I think I have the Kings, you know, serious losers. Um, and some people have, have proposed this. A lot of people in Sacramento have proposed this kind of, could this be the Ewing, the Patrick Ewing theory situation where, you know, they lose a great player, but they actually play better without him. Um, you know, I don't think that's the case, especially not moving forward because I think their talent is just so poor that it will just catch up to them. Um, but a lot of people in Sacramento, a lot of people, you know, in turn, are kind of saying like listen this kind of cloud over our franchise is actually gone um, and putting actually a lot of the blame on, on DeMarcus Cousins so you know obviously I, you probably have Sacramento Kings as a loser but how do you think they're going to fare moving forward um, with this lack of talent on the roster? Um, I think we already saw that the earring theory doesn't exactly work uh, in their game against the Hornets where they did not look even it was not good like I know Charlotte's been struggling too and it was a great game for them but that was really tough to watch the Kings play that time um, so I do think that like you, you can already see the effect of the Marcus Cousins like um, not being on the Kings like a guy who you know will consistently get you 20 and 10 a night or like even 26 and 10 a night um, is not there anymore so the Kings are really gonna really gonna struggle offensively um, and it's gonna be hard for them to get shots up even with Buddy Heald um, so I do think that um, I don't think necessarily a cloud is there over the franchise. I think a 
big talking point about the franchise now gone like oh will you get boogie cousins help or will you trade away boogie cousins now it's just like the kings are the kings that's that's basically what the talk is right now so um i think that they have a long way to go and right now they're currently digging themselves deeper in a hole concerning um the picks that they give up they had that i think that that pick swap might be with the 76ers yeah um so i mean they've historically made a lot of bad trades even with the stauskas trade trading away their first round picks for stuff like that um they do have some shooters with buddy heel ben mclemore ty lawson aaron aflalo um they just need they just need some pieces going on in the future on really good contracts i think um they just need a lot of guys to step up on their rookie deals um, they also need to completely ace these drafts because, like, if they don't, then you already saw what happens when you don't ace a draft like that. Like a guy like Demarcus Cousins, every comes comes every once in a while. So they need they need a lot of rebuilding, and this trade certainly set them back considering their return. Um, I wasn't completely disagreeing with their move in trading Boogie Cousins because there was problems with him in Sacramento, despite him being a great person for the community, a guy that everyone loved. I think there might have been problems with him and his teammates. Who knows? Um, but I just do think that the fact that, like you said, they do get they got fifty cents on the dollar. That was not that was not a smart move by uh, Vivek Ranadive or um, Vladi Divac at all. Yeah, and another reason I have the Kings as losers is, I mean, besides, I agree that you know if you're gonna decide to move Cousins, you know you want to get a better deal than this, and I don't fault them for actually moving Cousins, but I'm, I'm faulting them for the return they got on him. And then the other aspect of this is that you know they trade away Cousins, they get this young player, they get a pick, so yeah, everyone's like, oh, they're gonna rebuild, and then they didn't trade any of their other veterans. You know, Darren Carlson, they said was available, Flala was available. Um, you know, they should have probably traded one or two of those guys to get you know another pick, um, another young player, and stuff. Like like that so they kind of didn't fully go rebuild with you know keeping the veterans and when they could have got some younger players and you know that you mentioned their drafting situation it's not exactly you know you know they they got the pick from the pelicans um this year they have a pick swap with the sixers this year so if they finish worse than the sixers the sixers will get their pick they have their 2019 first round pick unprotected going to philadelphia as well so you know they even if they wanted to rebuild they don't exactly have the you know the great draft picks necessarily or the great young talent to do so so, you know, I agree. If you're going to trade Cousins, you trade him away. You don't get, you know, this kind of return. You try and get better than this. And, you know, Vladi Divac said he had a better deal two days before he actually accepted the Pelicans offer. That just doesn't make him look any better than they already look now. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of reasons why, you know, most people have the Kings as losers moving forward. It's just the Sacramento Kings franchise is basically just a loser any day of the week, really. Yeah, I think so. I think they're one of the—it's it's a tough— tough to justify this deal especially but i mean if your owner if your owner is justifying the deal then you might be in might be in some trouble because you know if they're not willing to accept that their own mistakes and stuff like that then it's gonna be very hard moving forward which you see with a lot some front offices in this in this league yeah exactly and if the owner kind of sets the direction for the franchise uh, let's move on to the Boston Celtics, who I have as minor losers. Um, you know, I'm not really necessarily faulting them for giving up great assets, you know, in a major move for like Paul George or Jimmy Butler. You know, we don't know how close they actually got to getting a trade for one of those players. But regardless of taking, you know, just not even considering that aspect, I really thought they should have made a smaller move. You know, I thought they, they certainly could have beaten the offer for Nerlens Noel, and they certainly could have beaten the offer that the Thunder provided for Taj Gibson. I thought both those players would have fit well in Boston, you know, helping their rebounding and interior defensive problems. Um, 
So the fact that they didn't really make a move even on that kind of level for a rim protector and rebounder just to help them in the playoffs, you know, maybe push them over the edge to get to the conference finals instead of potentially losing to this in the second round to a team like the Raptors, who got a lot better, as we both said. Um, that's kind of the reason why I have the Celtics as minor losers. So, you know, did you think that the Celtics should have given up at least an asset or two for, you know, a minor level move like a Noel or a Gibson or any other rim protector or rebounder, really? Um, I do think so. I think especially when it comes to a guy like Paul George, uh, Jimmy Butler and the Bulls, I think it's a whole other mess considering what Chicago reportedly was asking in return back. So, I mean, we can, I mean, that's just a whole other mess. Um, but in terms of like the Paul George trade, I think, I think this comes down to another argument that a lot of people in basketball have is, um, how much do you value future assets compared to assets right now? Um, especially in an Eastern conference where, you know, LeBron and the Cavs aren't exactly healthy. You guys are the two seed. Um, do you, like, what Danny, should Danny Ainge be able to part with those picks and some young guys for a guy like Paul George? I think absolutely, because I think this is a is a key time for Boston. Um, you know, Thomas and Horford kind of fell right into their lap along with the development of those young guys plus those picks. So, I mean, like, we haven't seen stuff. We haven't seen a team like this that's so good with such uh, loaded assets for the future in a long time. And the thing with draft picks, I think, that at least scare me the most is, like, the bust potential with yeah. many guys you see. Um, so, I mean, I would trade for certainty over future assets, although, like, you know, certainly. Um, I think also you could you could argue that if Paul George does sign with um, – I mean, or does get traded to the Celtics. If the Celtics, let's say, makes the Eastern Conference Finals, push the Cavs to seven, um, maybe win the Game 7 and stay in the NBA, uh, go to the NBA Finals, um, he does stay in Boston, which gives him like a big power trio of um, Thomas, him, Horford, and you also have glue guys like um, maybe Bradley and Crowder, assuming you trade away Smart or Bradley and Jalen Brown in some picks. So I do, I do think um, they should have definitely made a deal um, maybe a small one, like you said, for a Noel or Gibson, a rim protector. Um, but they could have easily thrown something at either the Bulls or the Pacers that they could have said no to. Yeah, I agree that they definitely had. They definitely could have made a, a serious offer that the Bulls or or Pacers couldn't resist, probably for for Paul George or Butler. And you know, I hear a lot of arguments saying, you know, you know, wait till LeBron's basically, you know, in a couple of years when LeBron basically won't be, you know, able to, you know, withstand these long playoff runs and he'll be passed way past his prime and, and Kevin Love will be probably past his prime by then. But, and you say like, oh, wait, you know, take the draft picks, use them on, on these great prospects that everyone's talking about um, and then move forward from there. But the problem with that is, you know, uh, Al Horford's like 31, I think. So, you know, if you wait a couple of years, he'll be 34, and then by then he he won't be valuable. Isaiah Thomas, I think, is 27, 28, so he's not exactly you know 24. He's not super young either. So it's not like they have all this time to wait when Al Horford's one of their big pieces in, to their core, and he's 30 or 31 years old. So you know, I agree that they should have taken the certain asset that is a Paul George or Jimmy Butler that potentially puts them over the edge, at least this season when the Cavs aren't 100%. And then, you know, try with that core for a couple of years or, you know, Butler's under contract, I think, till 2019. Paul George uh, next summer, uh, the summer after this one, um, you know, you pit potentially with a long playoff run, convince him to stay. So I agree. I think I would have taken the certainty over, you know, the potential that comes with, you know, the prospects in this draft, which, you know, they could be loaded. But are they going to be really ready to help the Celtics contribute to a championship run in their first or second year? I, I doubt it. So I'd take the certain assets in, in Paul George or Butler. I certainly agree with that. I think you take certainty over uh, future because, like you said, um, by the time you know those draft picks actually do develop, 
your other parts of your core will be old. So, I mean, and I think it does set up the Celtics for an interesting time of the summer because you'll know what that sorry, you'll know um, what that next pick is if it's a first if it's the first overall pick. So then maybe they could use that as leverage. They still have time to trade them away, but I do think uh, they have to trade them at least this summer. Trade for either one of them this summer. Yeah, that's what I think. I think they're going to certainly revisit, especially if depending on what happens to them in the playoffs. If they get if they have a disappointing playoff run, they'll certainly feel like they need to make a move for a guy who can win now. So we'll have to wait and see with the Celtics. Let's move to the Chicago Bulls. We talked about it from the Thunder perspective and now from the Bulls perspective. Um, you know, I like Cameron Payne a little bit, but I just don't see him being the point guard of the future, you know, not only for the Bulls, but for any team, really. I think he's more of like a backup guard, at, you know, for his potential. And then trading Gibson McDermott and the second round pick for a look at Payne um, isn't exactly what I would call a good deal. And, you know, the, the biggest problem with the Bulls is that, you know, they really are stuck in no man's land with no clear direction. Like, they really should be rebuilding, but they're not. They're trying to make the playoffs or something. I mean, they're trading away Gibson McDermott for Payne, so this seems like more of a rebuilding move. But then, you know, they don't trade Butler. Um, you know, they got a bunch of old other older guys there, and they're still in the playoff, you know, race right now. Um, so, you know, how are you viewing the, the Bulls' move? And then, more importantly, how do you view them moving forward in the future? Um, I don't think this, this um, I mean, usually uh, um, we, like, give Gar, Foreman, and John Paxson a lot of, like, um, a lot of criticism for making moves, um, but when they do make the moves, like, these are the type of moves that they make, and you can see why a lot of Bulls fans are not happy. Um, you basically gave away Todd Gibson uh, for nothing, Doug McDermott for nothing, for two guys on expiring contracts, and Laverne and um, Anthony Morrow. Morrow didn't even play last night. Laverne played two minutes. Um, so, and Payne was the only one who actually, you know, really played. So, I mean, these, these are the type of deals that just don't look good at all when it comes to this type of stuff, because like, you know, front office came and said, they again came on and said, you know, we're not exactly building around Jimmy Butler or building with them, which sort of in my gut feeling means that, okay, they're going to trade him because, um, you know, this team only wants to stay just good enough to where they get the playoff revenue and that's it. I think that's that's how it is with Chicago and it's really sad to see though because you know especially because like you know just a few years ago they were like Eastern Conference Finals contenders. Um, so I think Chicago has not chose a direction yet. Um, I hope they do choose a direction. I hope I'm I'm on the team of not trading away Jimmy Butler because I don't think you can honestly get the value back of what he's been playing at right now. I think you surround him with a bunch of shooters and guys who are decent enough defensively along with them. And maybe you can have a good team, um, not sign guys like old guys like Rajon Rondo, Dwayne Wade, um, not give up a bunch of draft picks for guys like McDermott and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think Chicago does have a lot to go into the off season, but then again, they're just going to tread water for now uh, as a six seed. Cause you know, Butler is going to drag this team across the finish line, no matter what. Uh, that's the type of player, up type of a player he is. Um, but this was a really bad deal for Chicago because they, I don't know, they gave up they gave up six picks to move Doug McDermott. Essentially, if you think about it, considering looking back on draft night, so mm-hmm. that was a complete failure. Um, you gave away Taj Gibson, someone who could have easily gotten a first rounder for, and you got a guy like Cameron Payne. So I mean, if they would have gotten a first rounder for Gibson, that could have been justified. But it's really hard to justify the trade for Chicago now, considering. Um, management's lack of direction and their lack of sticking or even choosing a direction at the moment yeah i have to agree with you you know gibson could have most likely gotten a first rounder from other teams maybe in the celtics um 
So trading him in this kind of deal really is not a good look. And in overall, just their lack of clear direction is just a, a, is concerning for the Bulls moving forward. Um, you know, let's move on to the Sixers, who are another interesting situation. You know, as I mentioned before, from the Mavericks' perspective, I really like the deal for the Mavericks. For the Sixers, you know, it's kind of hard to know if this was the best they could get for Noel, because maybe it is. We don't, you know, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, how low his value actually is at this point, but. Even then, the return on this deal I do not like. You know, we talked about Anderson before. He could be a solid rotational player, but, you know, that first round pick protected 1 through 18 is probably not going to, you know, convert to the two second rounders, which isn't a great return for Noel when second round picks are essentially the crapshoot in the NBA draft. So, you know, that return is, is very low. And my other question is could they just not trade Okafor at all? Because, you know, it was rumored a week or two before the Pelicans made the deal for Cousins that they had a, a similar deal ready for Okafor. Um, and I guess that, you know, uh, died down and they couldn't get any other team to get a, a decent enough offer for Okafor, which means his value is pretty low as well. So, again, this is like a Sixers kind of stealth tank move. They also traded Ilya Silva away. Um, you know, people were complaining when Hinky was openly tanking, but now Colangelo is there and he's certainly tanking with these moves that they've made. Um, so, how did you view the Sixers moves that they made and, you know, the other moves that they did not make in terms of not trading Okafor? Um, I think this is a great move for the Sixers. Um, actually, no, actually, I take that back. That's a really bad move for the Sixers, sorry. Um, in the fact that, um, you know, you didn't trade away Okafor, per se, and you gave away a guy like Nerlens Noel, who's pretty who's pretty good at what he does. So, I mean, that, that was just a bad move in general. I think that um, the return that they got was very bad. And like you said, it was also a stealth tank move because it gets them – it gets them either one first round pick or two second round picks, which is like a hinky type trade mm-hmm. um, that they could possibly flip for assets later. But I think that out of the two of the three big men, they traded away their second best big man, which was Joel and um, sorry, which is Nerlens Noel, who I thought fit well along Joel Embiid because Embiid's not even not that good defensively yet, and so Noel provided like a sort of backup to him whenever they played with each other, or I mean, if they were to play with each other, sorry, because they only played like a couple of minutes together. So now Philadelphia has this front court in Okafor and Embiid, which is decent offensively, pretty good offensively, but really bad defensively. So it make it opens up another hole that they could that they need to address on draft night. Uh, apart from getting a solid point guard, and with Simmons out for the rest of the year, um, I think this is uh, another tanking year for Philadelphia. But I just think the return that they got was not that good. Um, I like like we said earlier, we have to see how Justin Anderson plays, and we have to see um, if he develops into a talented wing. But as of right now, I think it's very hard to justify this trade for the Sixers and not trade Noel, considering the fact that they left um, Okafor off the plane and they did all these things to make it seem like Okafor is gone, and now he's now he's back here again. Um, I think you should have gotten rid of, uh, rid of Okafor for a uh, little asking price, probably. Um, but you don't give away Noel for something like that, especially considering how heavily protected that pick is. Yeah, I agree. The, the whole look of you know not having Okafor on the plane and everyone's like, oh, he's definitely being traded, then not trading him, then trading Noel for a low return. Just not a good look for the Sixers moving forward, and you know they're gonna have to hope they can swap they can swap swap picks with the Kings if the Kings completely collapse. Um, maybe the Lakers if the Lakers don't get that top three pick, it goes to the Sixers, and the Sixers still have the 2019 first rounder from the Kings. So moving forward, they still have great picks uh, in the draft. Still got some young players, Simmons, Embiid. They're gonna have cap space, so we'll have to see what the Sixers do moving forward. But certainly at this year's trade deadline, we have him as a loser. Let's move on to a team that we try and avoid here on the show usually, um, the New York Knicks. Um, 
I think that moving Melo, most people would agree, would, would have been the best for the organization, um, and especially Christoph Porzingis. You know, they probably couldn't get a decent enough return from Melo. Um, and the other rumor was that they were close to moving Rose in a, basically a swap for Ricky Rubio, and I thought they should have, you know, dealt him too. Um, and we know basically Joakim Noah's contract is basically untradeable at this point with his play and just how expensive it is and his age and his injury history. Uh, but I thought they should have traded Rose if they if that was the only move they could have made. They ended up making not, not no moves at all. And I think Melo, you know, said the other day that you know we don't know what the path is here or something something really concerning uh, concerning quote. Um, and just the, the Knicks are still stuck in that situation where they've got old players that are pretty much blocking KP's path to his potential, but they're not winning at all. They're, tor- they're close to the bottom of the Eastern Conference. Um, so, you know, you know, how do you view what the the Knicks didn't do and, and you know, how they move forward from here? I think it's similar to what in how Chicago operated and that um, Phil Jackson created a team that he was um, a lot of hit-or-miss guys considering with Noah and Rose, those two were the biggest hit-or-misses. Um, because because that season could because this season could have gone really well or really bad and right now it's you're seeing on the opposite end it's going really bad, um so they're doing just enough to stay relevant just enough to hover around the playoff race but I do think you should have moved Rose when you had the chance especially for a guy like Ricky Rubio who could um be like more of a ball facilitator unlike Rose, um and especially with Rose's expiring contract like you know you move him on to Minnesota I think Minnesota really wanted him so I mean. I mean, that, that could have just fell into their hands right there. And I think you do try to move Melo for what's best of the organization. Because I think Melo does want to move. And he does view the Knicks like, okay, if I do move, I hope it's for the, the good of the franchise, not because he leaves. Um, so I do certainly think you have the untradeable contract for Melo. That's a tough one to justify. And that one's going to be tough to justify for the next three plus three years that you have him under contract. So I think what the Knicks really need to do this summer is um, figure out how they want to build this team around Porzingis. Get a good guard first. I think that's the key thing. Um, maybe you could convince Melo to stay for another year or ha- potentially move him to a team that really wants a contender. Um, maybe like the Cavaliers or something like that. Uh, but I do think they have to they have to start building around Kristaps Porzingis, which at least they recognize that. Credit to the Knicks for that. Um, but they just have to start making the moves now and getting and undoing some of the moves that they made this summer, I think. Yeah, it's one thing that they, it's good that they recognize that they have to build Porzingis. It's not like time they actually made the moves to actually, you know, back up that talk and finally allow him to grow to the potential that he has. Otherwise, clouding him with these older players with that long, expensive contract is not going to do any good for the Knicks. And, you know, the other off-court situations, Charles Oakley, stuff like that, really just does not shed a good light on the entire organization, does not really attract them to free agents, in, you know, in the next couple of seasons when they're going to have some kind of cap space to, to spend. Um, we already talked about the Blazers as a loser, basically because of them making moves in terms of thinking about the spending spending spree that they went on the 2016 offseason. So let's get to a, uh, our final loser here. Um, it's kind of on the fence, but I, just, I decided to throw them into a loser. The Indiana Pacers. Um, I think they're basically a loser. I'm not faulting them for not trading Paul George, but I'm faulting them for not picking a direction. So, you know, they first came out a week or two before the trade deadline saying, we're shopping our first round pick. We want to get help for Paul George. Then they were openly shopping Paul George. So it looked like they're going to finally do a complete rebuild if they trade George. Or if they don't trade George, they're going to get him a piece to help him this season. But they didn't do anything at all. They didn't trade George, but they didn't get him any help. Um, so they didn't sell, but they didn't buy. And that's kind of the problem for the Pacers because 
Paul George said, I need some help. They didn't get him any help. But then he also said that, you know, I might, you know, want to go to the Lakers. You know, if I'm traded, I'm traded. They didn't trade him. So they're basically stuck where they were. And that's why I kind of have them as a loser for not picking a direction this trade deadline. So, you know, you know, how did you view that the Pacers not making any moves at all this, this trade deadline? Um, I think I'm with you. I think the fact that they didn't choose exactly a direction is the problem. I don't have a problem with them tra- not trading Paul George because I can see why he wouldn't trade Paul George. I mean, like, he's a key part. He's a great player, someone that you can honestly build around. I think the fact that they didn't make any moves to get any playmakers around him was the was the hard part. And like you said, they have to choose a direction. It's either Paul George or Miles Turner. Or if you want to do both, you've got to make moves right now so they can both be playing at their highest level and you – and you can possibly make a push for the top of the Eastern Conference. Um, I think Larry Bird has a lot on his plate this summer, certainly. Trading Paul George for a bunch of assets back would be certainly one move. Um, but you have to do it this summer, I think, because a lot of teams will balk will balk, um, in any trade talk after the summer because basically George is a free agent next summer. So, I mean, like this was the time that you could do it, like, like right now. Like That was the time that they had before teams start to get a little bit nervous about the contracts and the talks about him being so, um, I don't know, so motivated to go to the L.A. Lakers, I think that might scare some teams away. So, I mean, you should you should try to find a trade partner if you are, if you want to trade for Paul George, but you certainly have to, but if you don't want to do that, you certainly have to try to build around him and get good pieces because Paul George is, is very frustrated right now, and he's speaking out to the media about it. Um so, I mean, it's a very scary time to be a Pacers fan right now because you could see your star player walk away for free. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty for the Pacers, and I think that this offseason is going to be really, really interesting and really important for them to finally pick a direction for the franchise, whether that be trading Paul George for assets or bringing in some people to help him out and help him and Turner out. Um, so that will conclude our winners and losers. I only have one question for you before we go. This is a kind of a random question. What team is more likely to be pushed to seven games before they most likely meet in the finals? The Warriors or the Cavs, in your opinion? Um, I think it'll be. Shoot, I think it'll be the Cavs. I think. Yeah. Isn't that the the injuries and all that stuff? I mean, the Warriors are the Warriors right now. They, I mean, you saw what they could do against the Clippers. They just flip the switch and they score fifty. <laughs> um, the Cavs aren't exactly built for a team like that. Um, you saw last night with when they have a depleted squad like that. I mean, teams like Chicago could even give them a run for their money. So I mean, when the, when the pace slows down, especially with the with the Raptors' new additions, I really think that the Raptors have built a team that I would love to see match up against the Cavs. A team that could, you know, really really push the Cavaliers to seven games. I know they pushed them to six last time. But I do think that the Raptors could really give the Cavs a run for their money. So I'm going to go say the Cavs because I don't see any other team in the West giving the Warriors problems unless the Rockets fix some of their defensive issues and the Spurs become more of a like more balanced threat offensively and can be able to run run with the Warriors. So right now I think the Raptors are the team that's best set to beat the Cavs. So I'm just going to go with the Cavs. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think in the West, you know, the Spurs could possibly possibly push Golden State, but you know, by the time they probably meet in the conference finals, the Spurs could be a little worn out from their, some of their older players and probably won't be able to keep up with the Warriors. The Rockets have their defensive issues, and if the Rockets were to get hot for a series behind the arc, it could go seven. But it's more likely that the Golden State defense will be too much and limit that to a five or six game series. That case, and yeah, I'm with you. I think it's the Cavs. They're not 100% health wise right now. They may not be during the playoffs. I love, we both love the Raptors' new additions, especially in the defensive end with Ibaka and Tucker. And for that reason, I think the Raptors, with their new additions, could certainly push the Cavs to seven. So I'm going to have to agree with you. I think it's more likely the Cavs are pushed to seven games before 
they meet the Warriors in the finals most likely. All right, VJ, uh, before you go, uh, why don't you throw out your social media and where people can find your work moving forward? Um, I'm currently a writer for 16 Wins a Ring, and I also work at uh, SB Nation's uh, Bloggable and Big East Coast Bias, um, so you can check out my work there, and you can also check out my Twitter handle, where I post a lot of things on sports and social media, um, at VJVMU, at VJVEMU, um, so that's my Twitter handle, so uh, follow me there for um, links to all my articles and uh, good, great sports talk. All right, VJ, and uh, everyone follow VJ and follow his work on 16 Wins a Ring. Of course, um, follow the show and my work on 16 Wins a Ring and follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros. Hope you guys have a great week of watching NBA basketball. Take care.